Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 21 through 3. Please read all three verses with me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. My name is not Daniel. <laughs> Can you guys hear me now? A little bit? Okay. Well, I'll do my best to project my voice this morning. I think I am on. Uh, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thankful to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, thankful that we get to do it another day. Uh, that we get to do it uh, every Sunday and gather together at his church uh, to worship the, uh, the one and only. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your love towards us. In this, while we were sinners, you, you died for us. Thank you for your gracious hand and your love towards us. That even when we did not deserve, God, you gave us your son. Watch us, be with us, Lord, as we worship. God, may your name be honored and glorified today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, testing. Is that the one I should switch to? Okay. All right, better? Okay. All right, well, thanks for bearing with us as... I get settled and try to find my place here and get uh, microphones working. No set of laws is more well-known than the Ten Commandments. Whether you grew up in the church or not, the Ten Commandments are familiar to all of us. Many of us know one of them or a few of them. Some of you know all of them. But very few of us, if any, can put all of them in order. The Ten Commandments are so famous that uh, many have come up with their own versions of the Ten Commandments. Now, I just did a Google search, and there are all sorts of Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments of travel, Ten Commandments for effective clinical decision support, the Ten Commandments of community leadership, the Ten Commandments of Enzymology, and I apologize, I did not look that up. The Ten Commandments of Software, the Ten Commandments of Safety, the Ten Commandments of Healthcare, the Ten Commandments of Motherhood, the Ten Commandments of Humor, and even the Ten Commandments of Bacon. I did not look at the site. 
You can up, look. You, you can look it up. There are ten commandments versions of just about everything. But as we come to the text this morning, the most pressing question that we may have about the Ten Commandments that we're looking at, that we're endeavoring to study, might be, do the Ten Commandments matter to me? Do the Ten Commandments matter today? Are the Ten Commandments still important? Or are they outdated and, and archaic and, and no place in the 21st century? A few years ago, I had a person tell me in so many words, I trust the words of the New Testament and of Jesus, but not so much of the Old. And the Ten Commandments are found in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus. And so, ask the question, are they still relevant? It's difficult to sort through and figure out which of it, if any of it, still applies and which do not. I know that there are sacrifices made in the Old Testament. There are offerings of turtle doves. There are sacrifices of lambs and of bulls. There are ceremonial and civil laws directed and commanded of Israel. So the question again, which of it still applies? Really quickly, as I think this is important to our understanding of the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, particularly as we look at the Ten Commandments, there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. There are ceremonial laws, there are civil laws, and there are moral laws. Ceremonial laws related specifically to Israel's worship. These are the sacrifices I just talked about. Now, these aren't just offerings and sacrifices, but cover more broadly how we come to God in worship. The primary purpose of these ceremonial laws was to point forward to Jesus, which means these laws, perhaps for us, are no longer necessary after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So while we are no longer bound by ceremonial law, the principles behind them to worship and love a holy God still do. If you remember, Jesus was often accused by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of that time for violating ceremonial law. Why are you not washing your hands? Why do you eat on the Sabbath? All sorts of reasons uh, why the Pharisees uh, condemned Jesus. Now, there are civil laws spelled out in the Old Testament that apply to daily living in Israel. They are much like the laws of the land that we have here in the U.S. They were a law for a particular people for a particular time. And although the civil laws of Israel do not apply to us in the same way, the principles behind the commandments are still timeless. And there's the moral law. The Ten Commandments contain the moral law. The moral law reveals the nature and the will of God. And I would argue still apply to us today. And Jesus is the only one who obeyed the moral law perfectly and completely. And so the ultimate goal of God's law was given to help people love God with all their hearts, their soul, and their mind. And to love their neighbor as themselves. During Jesus' time, religious leaders had turned the laws into a confusing mass of rules. They had added rules to the rules that God gave. 
And when Jesus talked about a new way to understand God's law, he was trying to bring people back to its original purpose, to love God and to love others. Now, the Ten Commandments are not just a long time ago. Think about the Ten Commandments and its centrality to the, to the ethics of the New Testament. Think of Mark 10, verse 17, for example. There was a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. He lists the second part of the law, the second part of the Ten Commandments, the commandments that relate to our neighbors, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Jesus isn't laying out a path for earning eternal life. And we know from the rest of the story that Jesus is setting up the young man because the one command he obviously hasn't obeyed is the one that Jesus skips. He says, do not covet. And it's noteworthy that when Jesus has to give a, a convenient summary of our neighborly duties, he goes straight to the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. Or think about the Apostle Paul. In Romans 13, when the Apostle Paul wants to give a summary of what it means to be a Christian living in obedience to God, he looks to the Ten Commandments. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall, not, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments were important and significant to Jesus. They matter because it teaches us something about love for God and love for neighbor. There were something like 613 laws in the Old Testament that were summed up in these Ten Commandments, kind of the Cliff Notes version of the 613 laws that were outlined for us in the Old Testament. And Jesus gives us the, the Cliff Notes version of the Ten Commandments. And he says it can be summed up in these two things. Love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus transforms the Ten Commandments. And as, we'll, as we will see, he never meant to abolish the Ten Commandments, but to come and fulfill them. As I mentioned before, he was the only one who was able to fulfill them perfectly and completely. Well, we're in the Ten Commandments in one sense. We are continuing our series, something that we left off uh, in the fall as we were studying the book of Exodus. And so over the course of the next 10 weeks, we'll spend some time looking at each of the Ten Commandments in greater detail. If you were here during our study of the first parts of the book of Exodus, you may remember some of the details and the background of the giving of the Ten Commandments. If you were not here or you don't remember, it's okay. Uh, it seems like a long time ago, uh, and in COVID time, it was like ages ago, uh, but we are back in Exodus in chapter 20. But to give you a little bit of backdrop to the story, you'll remember the Israelites were held as slaves in Egypt for over 430 years. God raises a man by the name of Moses, who is born a Hebrew, but is raised in, a, in the palace of the Pharaoh. 
And it would be he who would help Israel narrowly escape death from the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians through the Red Sea and ultimately their deliverance. And after their escape, they wandered through the desert where they come to the foot of Mount Sinai where God would meet with his people. And it would be here that the people of Israel would receive the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods. Don't make yourself an idol. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal or bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. And so in Ten Commandment form, I'd like to give you a 10-point sermon this morning. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just two. It might be a long two, but it'll be two. Number one, the law is an expression of the lawgiver's heart and character. The law shows us who God is. When you read the law, when you read through the Ten Commandments, it shows us and gives us a glimpse of the heart of God. Before we say, I don't care for laws, or before we bristle at the thought of do's and don'ts, it's important to look at the heart and the character of the lawgiver who gives us the law. Because the commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. They tell us what matters to God. It reveals his character, the holiness of God, and the standard of holiness required of those who fellowship with God. When my kids were younger, there were lots of rules in our house. There were lots of laws. And I think mostly from me, um, I think partly because um, I wanted order, you know, in the house. There were lots of rules and lots of laws, and, and uh, I think we got a little bit more loose with them as uh, we had three kids. The first one, I think uh, we, we said more, we gave more laws and more rules, and I would hope that uh, now, you know, at 18 years old, he would see the heart of the lawgiver and say, what a kind and gracious father you were. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> I will tell you that, um, that a lot of the laws, you know, I think, you know, if we really think about the, the laws that were, you know, and the rules that we have in our home, that you would see a, a kind and loving father who really looks at the best interest of his children. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all the rules and, and laws were for them. Sometimes it was for me. Um, and again, I think sometimes it was selfish. I think a lot of times they were selfish. They were more self-centered. They were more about me than they were about my kids and what they learned. But there were some that were good. Don't play. Don't stick a fork in the electric socket. Make sure you look both ways before you cross the street. You know, good, good rules, simple rules. You know, a lot of rules and laws in our house over the years, but you would think that, again, these are, these rules and boundaries are, are put in place to really care for and show love towards the children or the ones who would follow those laws. And when we look at the rules, when we look at the laws of the Old Testament, we look at the Ten Commandments and we read through them, Hopefully our, our intention or hopefully our, our perspective of the Ten Commandments is to look at the, the heart and the care 
and the character of God himself and say, God, why did you give these? And what does it mean for me? The opening verses in Exodus 20 are not just filler before the commandments begin. They establish who God is and why we should obey him. In verse 2, God reveals himself as the Lord. That is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. This is the same God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses and said, I am who I am. The sovereign, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty creator, God. One writer, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, says, If there is a God, and if he is anything like the God who is revealed to us in the scriptures, then it would be extremely presumptuous, presumptuous, foolish, and by all accounts, dangerous for us to crowdsource our own ethical code. And here is a God who is telling us, and here are the laws, and I want to show you my heart, and I want to give you the reasons why you should obey them. And again, if you look at this closely, the God of the Ten Commandments is revealed not not just as Lord, but the Lord your God. And this is significant. This is not just a God. This is your God. This is not a God like all the other gods. This is a personal God. This is not like all the distant tyrant gods. This is a relational God. This God of absolute power is not a tyrant, not just some deity who wields raw and unbridled authority without any regard for his creatures. He is a personal God. He is your God. And in Christ, he is always for us. And it would be frightening to the point of death if God thunders from heaven and says, I am the Lord. But the divine self-disclosure doesn't stop there. He goes on to add, he is your God. He is on our side. He is our Father. He gives us commands for our good. It's because he loves us and cares for us deeply. Because we are his possession. Because we are his people. I am your God. If you look closely enough, you'll realize that the Ten Commandments are relational in nature. The first four deal with our relationship with God, and the the last six deal with our relationship to one another. The Ten Commandments, friends, are intensely personal. They are not just rules. They are given to establish a relationship with God and a relationship with one another. How do we know that? It is in the self-revelation, the self-introduction of God, Yahweh. I am who I am. I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us. And again, in the first two verses, again, very clearly, again, as God is explaining himself to Moses, he says, again, we are to obey the Ten Commandments on the double basis of who he is and what he has done for us. So when God gives these laws to Israel to follow, they are to show the deep nature of his love for them. And God says, 
I don't want you to get hurt and find yourself empty from following the things of this world. When we attach ourselves to the things of this world or to its rules and patterns and habits, we find ourselves in a downward spiral that leads us to worship of a vapor or a lie or a delusion. It always leads to a dead end. The God of the Bible is not simply interested in being recognized as strong and mighty, as a strong and mighty deity. That would not have been a controversial claim in the ancient world. Lots of people had lots of impressive gods and goddesses. But what was controversial and that set the Israelites apart from all the other nations was that God demanded to be worshipped alone. As the only God, to the exclusion of all others. It's not that this one command is better than all the others, but it's foundational for all the others that follow. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is uh, predicated on what the Lord did for the Israelites in Egypt. He saved them. He rescued them. He delivered them. He has a claim over them. And when God says, I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, he's reminding them of where they were, reminding them of what they had experienced, reminding them of the staff, reminding them of the plagues, reminding them of the Red Sea. And he's saying to them, why would you trust any other so-called God? Why would you ever trust yourself You didn't escape Egypt by your own ingenuity or because of Pharaoh's great kindness. I put you on eagle's wings. I defeated mighty Egypt, and you can trust me. The law shows us who God is, and the law shows us that God is good. God and God alone. The second point, that's how you know you're almost, we're almost done. Many Christians believe the Old Testament teaches that the law saves, and the New Testament teaches us that we are saved by grace. Did I say that right? Uh, some people believe that following the law, following the rules, and obeying them perfectly is what saves us in the Old Testament. And some believe that the New Testament teaches us salvation by grace, that no longer the law were saved by grace alone in the New Testament. But friends, the Old Testament is filled with law as well as the New. The Old Testament is filled with grace as well as the New. If you look at the story from the very beginning in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve sin against God, what does God do? Provision of grace. There's the law, yes, it needs to be punished. Sin needs to be atoned for, so he kills an innocent animal to clothe Adam and Eve in their nakedness and provides for them. In Genesis 15, when Abraham believed in the Lord, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We're saved the same way, whether in the Old Testament or in the New. Every person is saved by grace which is appropriated through faith alone. God gave a law not to save his people, but to teach them how to live. The law shows us, secondly, who we 
are. The law shows us who God is, but the law shows us, secondly, that again, that we need grace. We need the law and we need grace. Some people view Christianity as God has rules, and if I follow the rules, God will love me and save me. That's not what happens in the book of Exodus. The Israelites were an oppressed people, and God said, I hear your cry. I will save you because I love you. And when you are saved and free and forgiven, I'm going to give you a new way to live. Salvation, my friends, is not a reward for your obedience. God does not save you because you have followed the rules. Salvation is the reason for our obedience. Because God has saved us, we need to obey. Jesus doesn't say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. Instead, he first washes the feet of his disciples and then says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All of our doing is only because of what he has done first for us. I think we need to understand that these were given to Israel by God to show them not how to be redeemed, not a manual on how to be saved, but that they were redeemed and how to live as redeemed people. This was not a manual on how to escape slavery in Egypt. It was a, I saved you, redeemed you, and delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh. Now live as redeemed people. Remember that Israel had just emerged from the Egyptian culture. They had been living in an Egyptian culture that was diametrically opposed to God's will, to which the Israelites had been exposed to for over 400 years. And to add, they were about to enter a Canaanite culture, which God warned Israel not to be adopted by his own people. And so God gave the law to Israel to to dictate not only individual conduct, but to establish a corporate code of behavior, a new culture of sorts. Here is an Easter people, a redeemed people, a people saved by God, what it looks like. And that that, as they love one another, as they love God with all their heart, mind, and soul, and strength, that they will be a witness to a watching world. The law shows us as we really are. God gave a law to remind the people of their own sinfulness. Did God believe the Israelites were going to actually keep the law? I don't think so. That's why God instituted a sacrificial system with the understanding that they would need forgiveness. You know, the book of James says the law is like a mirror that shows us how dirty our lives are, are really are. In the book of Galatians, Paul refutes the Judaizers who thought the law was what saved them. And Paul said no. He explained the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. A tutor in Paul's day was a slave who would walk walk the child to school. And Paul is saying that the law is like a tutor, an attendant who leads us to Jesus Christ. And this is what the law does. The law does not save us. It reminds us how much we need God's forgiveness for salvation. Let me read to you Paul's understanding of the Ten Commandments. In Romans 7, he writes these words. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is evil? Of course not. The law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin took advantage of this law and aroused all kinds of forbidden desires within me. 
If there were no law, sin would not have that power. I felt fine when I did not understand what the law demanded, but when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner, doomed to die. So the good law, which is supposed to show me the way of life, instead gave me the death penalty. Sin took advantage of the law and fooled me. It took the good law and used it to make me guilty of death, but still the law itself is holy and right and good. The law demonstrates that we are fallible people. It shows us how weak we are as human beings to follow God completely. The law shows us our sinfulness and where we fall short. And so he gives us these commands. And the first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Because God knows the, the wandering heart. God knows the waywardness of every person, that if given a choice, we would always choose something else. God knows our tendencies. God knows the habits of our heart. And so first he says, you shall have no other gods before me. St. Augustine often noted that our problem is not usually that we love too little, it's that we love too much. We love certain things more than we love God, even though He is deserving of our greatest love. It was true during the days of the Israelites, true during the days of St. Augustine, and true as much today living in the 21st century. Our problem is not that we do not love God, but that so many other things have climbed up on that priority list of love above the one who deserves our love the most. St. Augustine defined all idolatry this way. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshiped. And so clearly when, when God gives us the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, he, he knew the, the waywardness of our own hearts and said, no other no other will satisfy. No other God will give complete satisfaction. In essence, there are two things that these commands teach us. Not, number one, worship of God is primary. It is the most important detail of life that cannot be overlooked if we are going to make life work. Worship is the key. Worship is key. Number two, false worship is one of the greatest evils people can practice. And it comes in all forms of idolatry we consciously or subconsciously create with our own hands. You shall have no other gods before me. Friends, when you read through the Ten Commandments, you'll read a lot of uh, thou shalt not. Don't do it. But behind every thou shalt not is a thou shalt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Then what is a thou shalt? Thou shalt have me. You shall have me. The heart of this commandment is joy. The heart of the commandment is love. The heart of the commandment is a relationship with God. The heart of the commandment is that we would find the fullness of life and the satisfaction of our own souls. When we follow after Christ, we follow after God, and we follow after God and God alone. 
May you find your true satisfaction, your true joy in God alone.